0: This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Today marks
1: the beginning of a three-part series that introduces us to Kendall and Ian, two friends and pastors. In this initial episode, Kendall will be sharing about his life, what led him to the Church of Christ in Oklahoma his relationship with Ian, and why he had to walk away from his church after 10 years of faithful and loving service. Kendall's unwavering commitment to people, his advocacy for justice, and his heartfelt pursuit of inclusion is a tremendous source of optimism and inspiration. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Boss podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction there there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsfield bus (laughs) and by god's grace it'll be a mountain by the time we're done you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus those are the options but the bus ain't gonna stop you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus those are the options but the bus ain't gonna stop before we get into your time at your church in Muskogee, what 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 led you into ministry? Uh,
2: I grew up around ministry. My parents uh, were pastors and church planters in the DFW area, so that's the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I was around it my whole life, and uh, I, I saw some of the treatment, honestly, of my parents and decided, I'll never go do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I was around the church my whole life and there's something beautiful that the church does and how it brings people in. So I always wanted to be a part, but never in the role of pastoring or shepherding or ministering. Early on in my life, as many people say, I, I felt a call. Uh, I'd be walking around the track with my mom and my mom would be way ahead of me. And I I can remember being in the fifth and sixth grade preaching to myself. And it may honestly mean just being, modeling what my see my parents do. But I know that those lessons spoke to me and challenged me to even be a, a better kid, if you will, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I felt a, a call to speak and to preach and to see the broken. I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but on Sundays we're very uh, divided. And as a kid, I remember not liking that. And Wondering, okay, Jesus, what, what do you gotta say about that? And being a voice very early on in my home and at school saying, No, I'm not gonna stand for division. I'm not gonna I am not going i will not be a part of it. So we can either be friends and you love who I love or we can split ways very early on.
1: Well, wow, that's that's beautiful. Now were your parents were they part of the Church of Christ or were they a different denomination?
2: Yeah, they were a part of the Church of Christ, and they they still are actually. However, the Church of Christ does not allow women to preach. But my mom is one of the coldest pastors in the DFW area, (laughs) and so she gets to travel interdenominationally and outside of the dominant denomination of Church of Christ all over, speaking and teaching and leading. And so I got to witness it on the Church of Christ side, but then also her and different churches just using her gift to encourage people. That's
1: beautiful.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, let's move into your story today. So you went on staff in kind of an interesting way. I wouldn't say that you were necessarily just like jumping in two feet into the deep end onto church staff. You kind of stumbled into it in a sense. Would you say that's correct?
2: Yeah, I, I would. Do you want
0: to walk us through that a little bit and what your role was there and how that came to be?
2: Yeah, most definitely. Oh man, so it seems so long ago. <laughs> we started attending a church here in Oklahoma. Well, I guess I started attending. And I brought my girlfriend who would become my fiance and my wife and one of my best friends, Kyle. And Kyle and I were doing music, blessed to travel and play. He's actually still playing with We Are Messengers. And we go into this church, and I see, it's a predominantly white church, but I see a few Black students there from the local college. And I'm like, yeah, they're there. I'm going to be here. Beautiful thing. Let's figure this out together. I had just signed a music deal with church boy records out of Oklahoma City. And I was getting ready for what I wanted to do. And my girlfriend saw a need to get involved with the church. There were about, like I said, three or four black guys and two or three black girls. My wife is white and Native American. And she was like, I feel a connection here. I want to be a part. I want to love these students well. So she gets plugged in. She grows that ministry from two or three young ladies to about 25. And she was like, you need to get involved with the men. And I'm like, no, never. And she just pray about it. And as I prayed about it, I realized that my life overlapped theirs in so many different ways. And then after a while, hanging out with those guys, I said, you know what, I do need to get involved here. Um, and over time, it God does this weird thing that as you get closer to him, the things you love become less important. And so music became less important. And whatever I was striving after was just like, uh, the important thing is them right now. And I thank God that my wife now, who was my girlfriend, then saw it and persuaded me and loved me into that space. So after about two years of volunteering, I became the college minister there. And I spent time, my wife and I, growing that ministry to about 45 people, sometimes in the building and well over that on campus. We took that ministry serious in in a way that these students were in our home. Many of them actually are still a part of our life today here in our hometown. They just didn't move away.
0: I did want to note, so you came on as like an official capacity, staff-wise, as the college yeah. minister, correct?
2: Yes, yes, and I, I honestly, kind of reflecting back, I think that having forty to fifty students in a predominantly white church who are black and brown, I think there was some of that. Hey, they need someone in leadership who looks like them and who can be a voice at that table for them. And so I, I give credit to the church for recognizing that and wanting them to know that they have representation. Uh, it takes a turn to the South a little bit later, but the initial, hey, we see you, let's bring Kendall on. And there was a lot, if you ever done college ministry, it's messy. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of uh, trying to figure out who you are and needing someone at 2 a.m. 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to come to IHOP and sit with you. So <laughs> it, it was messy. And so the church was like, hey, this is a full time position because my wife and I were doing it full time already. Uh, we just weren't getting paid for it.
1: What was the, it was, you said it was predominantly a predominantly white church. And then now you have a group of individuals who are coming in that are, you know, not white, right? You have BIPOC voices right. coming in. BIPOC people coming in. How was that perceived? What was the culture like of the church? And then how was how that perceived now that the dynamics shifted within this church?
2: Uh, there was an internal struggle that kind of manifested outwardly. Um, it was, we love to have you students here. We want to feed you. But one of the things the students did very quickly was like, we're grateful for the food and the place but we we want a presence. And that's totally different. We want to be a part. Many of these students were churched, and they were praise dancers and drummers and singers, and they wanted to take up space. They wanted to be a part of the church. So it brought about some serious conversations. Are these students or are they members of the church? And the shepherds actually ended up having that conversation at a meeting, and they 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 fell to me on the side of exclusion, that they're students and not members. Uh, but I love the students. They were cancel culture before cancel culture was here. They were like, no, we're not going anywhere, and we feel that this is home. So we're going to push back. And they brought real conversations to our shepherds as to why can't we serve and why can't we be a part? Why can't the women serve and pray and lead here? So they brought um, a shift in our foundation and a crack in the foundation actually is what they exposed.
1: And I think it's important too for as we kind of get progress in the story. Kendall, you were on staff for ten years, correct? Yes. At this church. So Yes. So when this when you kinda of took over, you and your wife took over the college ministry or started the college ministry really, and then you kind of took that over as a staff perspective, that was like what, year one and two, basically.
2: Actually, uh, even that's a hard story. My wife should have been the college pastor. Okay, she should have been, uh, because of the hierarchy and just the misogynistic vantage point of the Church of Christ. Uh, they put me in that position and thought that they could just add her on, and that was that was difficult in our home, and it wasn't right. But I became the college minister paid and she continued to volunteer and we did our best to kind of fight and be like well this is what you said because they even told her they'd bring both of us on and they just kind of reneged on that
1: props to you Kendall (laughs) to say his wife should have taken the job that's awesome
0: it's in line with a lot of what we hear like in these complementarian spaces even soft I'm using air quotes soft comp places like if you want to be in ministry you're, and you're a woman, then you need to marry a pastor because mm-hmm. that's like the only space for ministry for you. So, mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, it's super common, but um, dang it. <laughs> I wish it wasn't. <laughs>
2: so true. I mean, we're so impoverished. We are missing out. It's, it's our women. I mean, everywhere else but the church – Women are co-leading and sometimes just flat-out leading, um, and I think that that's in the beginning how it was established that we were helpers for one another. And so, in the church space, especially the Church of Christ, we're impoverished. Our women are amazing, and they they just kind of get looked over.
1: I love that word you use, impoverished. I, I'm going to steal that from you. I think that's like a you But I, I think that's a great way to like describe it. The fact that we aren't utilizing these voices and get these people, these women, and their voices and their gifts in the church does leave us impoverished. I love that. I do want to talk a little bit about what the church culture was like on staff early on and then how that evolved over time.
2: The culture, I don't know if it's like this in all other churches, but most of the time I existed in a silo. I was doing my own work. Youth minister was doing his own work. Lead pastor was doing his own work, and we met once a week just to kind of touch bases. But we, the culture was that you go off and do your own thing on staff. The culture, as I said, as a church was at a place where they were recognizing that we need to pivot. We we either need to have a real conversation with a student and let them know that you're a student and that you're welcome here, but your gifts and talents aren't, or We need to change as a church. The culture was shifting uh, with me personally. Here's one of the things that happened. Because I was on that staff and I existed as the only other as far as race on that staff, there was an assumption that I was like them and I agreed with everything they said. So there was an overlooking of my voice because he's on staff. You know, he's one of us. Uh, That came to a head later in life when they realized that I was a little bit more black than they thought. (laughs) I had some fun conversations. And some of that also is because I came from the same denomination. And so what we do is we make those assumptions that, oh, he's Church of Christ, not understanding that I came to Christ because he made room for me at the table. They were already at the table. So the black experience inside of the Church of Christ is radically different than the white experience. But because it's Church of Christ, it's like, oh, he believes what we believe. Um, but I there's a drastic difference in how we see Jesus, even in the person, the physical person. There are characteristics of Jesus in scripture that I'm like, yes. And then when I go in the church, I'm like, no. <laughs> That's, he didn't have a perm, as uh, Lecrae says. <laughs> so, so the experience um, is just given to you when you step into the door.
1: Do you think that the college students over time pick that up too, where they felt like that they just didn't fit in, like they weren't going to be able to fit in here? I guess I'm trying to understand a little bit. I know the college students, there ends, ends up being an exodus of these college students. What was some of the mm-hmm. things that they were going through that ultimately led them to be like, I'm, "I'm not either I'm not safe here or I'm not welcomed here?
2: I don't want to speak for all of them. I will say for the church, they were loved as well as the church could love them. But one of the things, even as I walked into this space, I said to myself, I'm not going to code switch. I've listened to enough of your podcast that I can just be me here. And so one of the things that the students did is they code switched the moment they walked in those doors. And so they knew, at least for the initial period of them being there, that I need to go along with the culture and not bring all of me in here. Once they ran into what they perceived was love, they started to let some of those barriers down and they realized that this isn't the place for that. So to kind of answer your question, my position was one of the hardest I've been in. I had to welcome people who looked like me and answer some very difficult questions that they have. One is the love real. Like, what I'm feeling, is it real? Am I welcomed here, and can I be all of me here? And the answer to all of those questions was yes and no. The love is real, but what I found inside the church is love became a barrier to not let me really get to know you. Oh, I love you in Christ. You're my brother. You're my sister. I love you, but in my world, if I love you, then I'm going to get to know you. I'm in your business, how you treating people, how your finances— Why did you just yell at your kid? Let's talk about this. But in the church world, because I said, I love you, understand you don't get to come anywhere past that. That should cover every question you have. So the students pressed in and they said, hey, we want to sing. We want to lead worship. We want to drum. I want to dance. And the church said, no, but we'll give you one day out of the year to do a college Sunday And that went well for the first few Sundays, but then the students were like, we want to do more. And the shepherds had a meeting, and I became a gatekeeper, sadly, to tell them, if you want to use your gifts on a regular basis, you may need to go somewhere else to do it. And they did. They left.
1: And the church, like specifically, if I remember, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, specifically in the area you're in, in Oklahoma, it is a culturally diverse area, right? Oh, yes. So, I mean, it would make sense then that this church, to be a true makeup of the population that you're serving, it's going to be culturally diverse. It should not be predominantly white. Is that accurate? Correct. Okay.
2: It is. Maybe around 2017, there was a census taken and we were 49% black and brown, 51% white. But I think here in 2023, it's, it's reversed.
1: Okay, wow. So then how did the church then interact within the community? Like, how was it serving the community considering that it's predominantly white after the college students leave, but it's serving a predominantly diverse community, or a diverse community? How does it interact with the community? What's its perception of the community? Well,
2: let me differentiate really quickly. I think there were many members who didn't know about the meetings behind closed doors. And I think there were many who would have been really upset okay. about the decisions that were made on their behalf. Uh, but as far as the leadership, the church, and here's really important, that this is one of my takeaways from my time there. If the church, is in the church's foundation, if there isn't reconciliation, if there isn't an outreach for people who look different than you, then the conversations will always arise, but the application never will, never will manifest. So as far as getting into the community, we did the things like the community cleanup, or we'll do things to bring people to our space. But the church did not do well at going out and being a part of the community and loving the community where they were. Uh, We struggled in that area. We did end up having a bus ministry where some of the college students would go to the neighborhood apartments and pick up kids and bring them there. But that became a source of friction and frustration because the kids' parents weren't there. And so that ended up stopping as well. But as far as getting into the community, the college ministry was that. That was the the
0: reach. (laughs) I think oftentimes throughout your story, There's this base level desire to look like the diverse kingdom of God Mm -hmm. on the outside. But then when it came to making the moves on the inside, kind of what you're talking about, and then realizing that there was sacrifice and it was going to look uncomfortable and it was probably going to make some people mad, that's when things started to crumble. You're living in that. And now Mm -hmm. they have to wrestle with that. Because, like, they love you, and you agree with us about everything. Right. But wait a second. What do we do now that we're seeing George Floyd protests? Like, what do we do with that? So can you walk us through a little bit of getting to there and some of your experiences leading up to this time where now all of a sudden they're realizing, okay, there's tension. Mm -hmm. We got to do something here. So... Can you walk us through how that played out in your church context and in your staff context?
2: Oh, yes. I can take you to a specific moment that brought the college students, what made them feel more at home within the church, but brought division for our other brothers and sisters. So uh, we had a time that was just called the table talk, and that's where someone comes up and Speaks about communion and what it means and uh, one of the women in our congregation used that time to talk about eric gardner a gentleman here in tulsa oklahoma who was shot a black man by a white woman the students went up to her after service immediately and i did too and said thank you Uh, because we were wondering if y'all i'm going to put them in my own words we're wondering if you guys saw us in that way so thank you uh, my white brothers and sisters is like, keep politics out of church. And we're like, this is not politics. This is the life. And that's what happens. If you put people into these social systems, you never have to care about the soul. So we were like, no, we feel seen. And that brought some division. Uh, they brought me in and had a, kind of an intervention. The shepherds and their wives a couple weeks after this brought me in just to say, how are you doing? And I said, uh, like every other black person, I'm scared. They did something that I want to say was in good faith, but didn't realize what they were doing. It was ignorant. They told me that you're okay. You're one of the good ones. Just be good. And what they tried to do was give me their favor or their privilege. Not understanding that if I put a hoodie on when I left that meeting and walked (laughs) in McDonald's, I don't get to say, hey, this brother said I'm good. No, I don't get to carry that with me. So it it was hurtful that you don't see that I have reason to be afraid. But I understand the tension that they were in. Um, It's hard to wrestle with what's in front of you sometimes and to say, what's my role? So I want to understand, but also say, wait, you missed it. So there were two moments where the church had to really wrestle with, one, who was helping lead them, and two, what were the people who looked other than them sitting in the pews, worshiping with them as a body of the Christ, saying, hey, I'm hurting, and I hear you talking about Jesus, but I know Jesus would have said something about this, and you're not.
1: I don't even know. I, I can't comprehend what that means and how you feel about that. But like the fact that you would have to just like think that and say that, like that they don't understand that dynamic. How do you feel safe in that place? Like after that happens, like did you not feel safe or how how are you able to have so much grace? That's really what I'm coming to because like, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can't, I cannot put myself in that position nor will I ever be able to, but like, even when you're talking about it now, there's so much, and I know the rest of your story, and we haven't gotten into the meat of it. How do you have so much grace in that place?
2: Uh, let me back into that and say that I didn't have so much grace. You didn't. <laughs> and I don't. Okay. There is a wrestling within my soul with God daily. Yeah. Uh, just last week, I'm like, God, when are you going to stop this? Yeah. So it, there isn't a... Uh, I see people and I say I want to be good to this person regardless. God help me because I'm struggling uh, today. Keep people out of my way, God. Just, just let's just me and you walk. Or God, I don't have nothing good to say. Let me just not say nothing. And then there are times when I did say something and I need to say, Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, I messed up. I shouldn't have said that. I know that I hurt your feelings. I use the word privileged a lot in that context, and I hurt a lot of people's feelings, man. (laughs) They did not want to hear that word, and I'd have to say, I'm sorry. It's what it is, but I I don't want to hurt you by that word. It wasn't that I had grace. Jay, it was more of like, God, I I need help because I'm hurting, and sometimes it was just choosing to flat out ignore the things that were said
1: the the privileged word how, like that's not a bad word like that's a word that we need to oh, no. embrace and understand because like i carry privilege and at times like i know like people need to tell me that like hey that's if i'm speaking about something it's appropriate to tell me that hey that's coming from a perspective of privilege and as a person especially as a white male we can't be afraid of that like we have to we have to that needs to be part of our walk because that's mm-hmm. good that's good to be called out something like that and understand where you're overstepping or saying something out of ignorance, because that gives us a mm-hmm. chance to bring what you talked about, which is reconciliation or restoration or healing, and that's a good mm-hmm. thing. So I don't want us yeah. to be—and I'm talking to my, my fellow white males out there—we need to not be afraid of that term, but we need to be open to hearing it, because it's not a bad term we we made it bad because we feel like we're losing power. We're not losing power. We are embracing the fact that we have it. We have privilege. Yeah. And it's okay that people say that to us. And it's a good thing.
0: Something that I'm wrestling with as you even say that internally, And that I wonder if like a listener would be wrestling with internally, so I'm just going to voice it right now as we're moving in, is what responsibility you have to say sorry to someone whose feelings are hurt by a word that's not hurtful. Mm
1: -hmm. And then
0: what I started doing internally, because you are a pastor in this context, was thinking through, that is such a delicate balancing act that you were having to walk Mm -hmm. to minister to these people who are having hurt feelings over things that that shouldn't hurt their feelings and not very many shepherds do that lay down themselves and walk that painful road to disciple and care for their flock but it was at such a great cost to you
2: i can say i didn't know that i was doing that in the beginning um My view on life is a very simple model. I really believe we're better together. So it was like with those lenses that I was connecting with people, the shepherding part of it is something that each pastor knows you grow into. Now, this did play a huge part in how I did shepherd as the lead pastor when some very ignorant things were said to me, but I didn't know it right then. It was just like, man, how can you not see we're better together? And that's kind of, why I continue to have conversations um, that was like, hey, well, I don't know if it's my job, but I'll share my life with you. I'll share my experiences. And I don't even know if I was hoping that it would change them, but I was hoping that they would see me. It was a weird space to be in. It was a hard space to be in. And at times you just want to say, man, um, let's go find some more people to hang out with. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness. Can you walk us through some more red flags and then kind of move us into I guess the big crumbling? Can you walk us through some of that?
2: Yeah, um the red flags happened pretty early on honestly within 2 months of me being there I needed to go see some finance team. And I go and see this person sit in their office. And I understand I was new there on staff and this person wanted to connect with me. But how they chose to connect with me was really weird. I love sports. Not necessarily to watch them, but I love to play them. And that's one of the things I think he knew about me and wanted to bring that into that space of our first meeting. And he talks about the old baseball team here in this community. It was a part of the Negro League. And he shares that with me, talks to me about how whenever they would play, people would use the other N-word. And he chooses to use it in our setting. And I'm like, okay, wait, do I correct him? But this is my only source of income right now. This is an older person and a shepherd. Let me sit with this one, go talk to uh, Amy, with was my wife now at the time, and just see How do we navigate these waters? So that was red flag number one. The second, we're in a shepherds meeting and our college ministry had grown tremendously. Excuse me. One of the shepherds was like, hey, there is a black acapella group in Tulsa who are killing it right now. We'd love to bring them here. And my take, I'm a very laid back person. So my take was like, okay, if you think they'd enjoy that, go ahead. So he introduces it at the meeting, and another shepherd is like, "Why isn't Kindle bringing this up if he wants to do it?" And I sat back and I watched this kind of open up as the first shepherd who introduced the idea was like, "Well, I approached Kindle, so I thought I'd bring it up." And the other gentleman was like, "No, he is his ministry. He needs to figure out how to do this." And so I just stepped in and said, "Hey." But well, the gentleman said, hey, this shepherd, Teddy, wanted to bring it to our students. It doesn't bother me. So go ahead. And he fires back and says, "You're the words were arrogant and you have a chip on your shoulder and you don't know how to yield the privilege given to you. And this is a very prominent leader who I'm sitting back and watching. He did not know I'm watching. I'm a, I'm a watcher. And I'm watching him with his wife and with his children, and I'm taking notes. And I haven't had any real interactions with this guy. So that hurt. I go home and share it with Amy. I'm new into the world of pastoring. So the other side of me is just like, just hit him. Like, <laughs> show him the chip on your shoulder. Like, you've only been in the job a few a few months. Go get another one. <laughs> I end up calling him and saying, hey, can I meet you for lunch? He was like, yeah, what for? And I say, I'll share it with you when I get there. I go to his town and meet for lunch. And I say, hey, you said some things about me that obviously you know something, and we we don't interact, so how do you know this? And he simply said, you saw an old version of myself kind of come back, and I apologize for that. And I didn't let him off the hook, and I was like— I under, I appreciate that, but how do you know these things? Uh, they were personal. I have a chip on my shoulder. Um, I'm arrogant. And he just kept going around it. And I just said, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for lunch. I forgive you. But that one still hurts to this day because of how valuable he was in ministry there and how everyone looked to him for the source of wisdom and my first interaction with you, it was less than pleasant. Let me put it that way.
0: Right. And a leader of that prominence putting defining words onto you is yeah. is not something small. In no. any of us who have worked in any context, but I mean, I've worked in ministry contexts. If you have a leader like that putting words on any other staff member or leader within the church like that, then that is really who they become in the mm. eyes of many. Yeah.
1: Well, and they and he didn't go back and apologize to you publicly either. So now the staff, right, yeah. they all don't know that conversation happened, mm-hmm. which is even more troubling. Yeah.
2: And so uh, I just kind of become more of an introvert in the meeting. When it's my time to share, I share what I need to share. We're moving through the Eric Gardner situation and the loss of so many, and and I'll move us into one more. This does get brought up in the meeting after they have this intervention come to Jesus meeting with me. The shepherds who weren't there were informed about what happened, uh, about my fears. They want to pray over me. And another one of the shepherds just looks at me and says, you know, if you would uh, wear your hat forward these things probably wouldn't be happening to you guys. And so he gets up and puts my hat on forward. I'm looking around at all these other, men, like, do I need to defend myself in this space? And he goes on and and feels uh, the freedom to say that part of the problem is, is that we, we let the slaves go too early. And if we, yeah, (laughs) said, Oh my God. Yes. And, um, so I'm I'm just sitting there silent, taking in who my new uh, bosses are.
0: <laughs> also, side note: if you've missed that, everyone, a man got up and physically changed your hat forward. Yeah. So, not only are they completely offensive and horrendous in what is being said, but there's physical boundaries that were crossed in that moment the audacity
1: and he he changed your hat and then he said the comment about the slaves let's just put two and two together there a white man is physically touching a black man and then making a comment of slaves i will say that like that is something consciously he's doing to say i have power over you and and remember that Mm. And and you know Kendall's shaking his head maybe maybe not. I think 100%. This is my opinion, just my yeah. opinion. Yeah. But I think so like like saying I'm I'm asserting my power over you. What in the world did you do? Uh
2: honestly, I just uh, I I took it in, I analyzed it. So I'm a thinker. So I know to go back to that space. I was up most of the night thinking about it. Uh really trying to figure out okay God, how do I navigate these waters? Did I do anything? And and that's just the way I work. God, what can I learn from this? What did I do? What could I've done better? It's never on that person. That person is working out their own thing with God. I learned a long time ago that I cannot let other people's shortcomings, or in this case, just ignorance, control how I do life I was a young kid diagnosed with dyslexia. I had to figure those things out early. Like, hey, I'm still going to be happy. It's going to bother me because I'm connected with you that, you know, we're in this space together. But I can't give you my peace. I can't let you control my anger. You don't get that from me. So I let them pray over me. I went home and talked to my wife. Man, we got so close in this time. (laughs) We hurt
1: together.
0: I would be like <laughs> breaking dishes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: Your wife has a story too, and you, but your wife is part mm-hmm. Native American. Which generationally, especially in Oklahoma, I mean, there is tons of carnage there generationally for how yeah. Native Americans were treated, and it probably continues They probably are continuously treated this way. Maybe in those spaces too. I don't know. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that there is some something that's there as well. I mean, that's just a tinderbox right there, right? For both of your emotions. I mean, I think we all kind of have to sit back and realize that something I was going to comment about the praying too, like that is in a way, again, I I view that as that's super offensive as well. Like they're almost trying to pray away who you are. That's kind of how I'm reading it. Like let's pray away Kendall Mm -hmm. so he's more like us. I can only imagine what that does to your head did you feel like that when they were doing that? Like, did you feel like they were trying to pray away parts of you to make you more compliant with who they wanted you to be?
2: Uh, honestly, I think I was so much in my head at that yeah. moment that I, I couldn't tell you the prayers yeah. that they prayed. I, I, I want to say that they were genuine, uh, but I was, I was somewhere else, making sure I didn't react. Uh, I wear everything on my face, so making sure I wasn't making them crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like those crazy... Yeah. Westbrook, what looking face at them. So uh, I wasn't there. Uh, I wasn't necessarily, I, I remember I wasn't hurting and I wasn't really over angry. I was just like, uh, what just happened? And how did I find myself in this space? I turned to laughter for a lot of things. So probably laughed it away and went and put on something funny and went home and talked to my wife. It was like, I'm not sure what to do here. And
0: yeah. the context of that meeting was, After uh, the Eric Gardner conversation that happened on that open mic type thing, right? Yes. So they had come to you, heard all your fears. You're walking in raw, like Mm -hmm. very raw to this prayer meeting. And this is what happens in that context. After you trusting them with like some very deep personal pain That's really sad. And it it does gross me out that the prayer happened. And I do think that there's like this like well-meaning side to that. I've seen it. I've witnessed that well-meaning side within church contexts. I've been a part of that well-meaning side, unfortunately. (laughs) But what I am feeling is this privilege that they don't want to talk about. And this idea that we'll just drape all our privilege on you and we'll pray about it and like I'll feel good because I'm using my privilege to teach you to wear your hat forward. Make sure that you're a good one. That is really gross and twisted and... That's where we get this idea of white saviors. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, I'll recognize my privilege only to the extent that it makes me feel good about myself, not to the extent where I'm flattening power dynamics and allowing myself to platform and raise up people because of my privilege. It's, I'm going to use people as stepping stones to just get further up the ladder. Mm -hmm. I don't think people... Oftentimes, especially in church context, I don't think people are recognizing that or know they're doing that. I think mm-hmm. that there's like this surface level, again, back to the conversations that they're even having both publicly and privately in your church setting. There's a surface level understanding of we want the church to be this diverse kingdom of God, this diverse family, but I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel the consequences that it's going to take to get us there. And those are worthy consequences, but people don't want to do it. And I think that's what you and I think you know that I'm putting into words for all the fellow white women out there listening. Like that's what's happening in this moment is these people are seeing you as a friend. So let me help you out by making myself feel better. It's like this idea that they know you're a good one. So you'll be safe. Is such a ludicrous idea like what world how much power do you think you hold as a human being that your like all knowing view of another human is going to protect them outside of your presence or even in your presence it's wild but it doesn't end there. And I think anyone <laughs> listening knows that because our nation didn't really change much after Eric Gardner.
1: <laughs> I, I want to say one thing before we get to the next part of this, because I think this is important too, because a common thing that we hear is just preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Here's what I would say. When someone shares their story, when a person of color, BIPOC voice comes in and says, here's my story, here's the pain that I'm going through, right? Right. We think the correct response is prayer or what have you. But if we want to really stick to the gospel, Jesus didn't pray over people who came and shared their stories. He entered the story with them and was present in that moment. You know, there's countless stories that you can go to. One was Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he wept because everybody was crying. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we're truly being the gospel, or we want to stick on point with the gospel, then stop praying when people come and share your stories and listen and lament. You don't have to have an answer. Sometimes people just want to share their story and feel like you hear and see them and are there with them. And so I, I, yeah. a lot, of, a lot of people will be like, preach, stay, stay on point with the gospel. That is staying on point with the gospel. What you're doing isn't the gospel. You're trying to just make yourself feel better and gloss over it. It's ugly, and it's, gro- and it's gross, and it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to stay in the moment, but that's what Jesus would do.
2: Yeah, and can I, can I add to that really quickly? Just because uh, someone tagged me in something just like that on Twitter, I'm, I'm just going to love. I'm just going to do the gospel thing. Uh, the truth is, is if your foundation is not connected to God's righteousness, your love may feel like hate to people of color. Your gospel may be offensive and not in the sense that it offends darkness, but it just offends dark people. <laughs> it offends people who look like me. So you're right. It, it it goes so far beyond. My favorite story encounter in the gospel is when Jesus touched the leper because he didn't have to. But that Greek word means that he literally felt pain in his stomach. Like when you see someone break their wrist, like how you cringe. That's that word. He, he felt what they went through. He didn't just say, oh, go read Matthew or Mark. It's the shortest one. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, I'm hurting. Uh, I see it in your eyes. Uh, I ain't got nothing to say. I just want to sit with you and you're hurt. And it's hard. And that's why the church is amazing at talking about it. Um, but walking it out, we tend to shy away from that. And I don't want to be over hard on the church. Uh, it's, it's the bride of Christ. But as a part of the church and someone who's been blessed to be inside of the, the ministry part of it, it's something that we could do better at.
1: I'd like to get into your relationship with Ian, but is there anything, I mean, there's a lot that was said to you, specifically uh, racist terms that were said, I guess, in conversation with you privately by shepherds and elders. You did share a few of them. There was quite a few. Is there any others you'd like to share? And then we could pivot toward uh, your, your relationship with Ian and how he came on staff.
2: I mean, I'll just share an overview. In in my ten years there, it happened every time I got close to a shepherd. Uh, the N word was used five different times. I think around the third time, it was like, okay, I, I need, I need to lovingly correct. I was then now the lead pastor or minister, and I needed to have the hard conversations about what is it about your your relationship with me that makes you feel like you can say this. And I would say many just didn't understand the weight of the word. Most of the time, it was—it's just a word. I can say what I want to say. And this is shepherds, and I'm saying no. It's not. It's not just a word. And the truth is, is if you would have looked at me when you said it, you would have realized it wasn't a word.
0: Because your face isn't hiding anything, as oh, we know. No, it's, not. So,
2: it's, it's Westbrook all day.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's just like again this just complete ignorance to the weight of our words and actions, especially yeah. surrounding race. Um, you're a lead pastor now, mm-hmm. but I think something that's important for us to state is that in a lot of the context that we talk about on the podcast, the lead pastor means they get to do, make all the decisions and like right. they're like the head, they're the, dri- the bus driver now, right? right? That is not how Church of Christ works. Right. So can you just explain just real quick a little bit of like the, the power structure in that space? Was there like a main voice that held more power in this space?
2: Uh, primarily it was the shepherds. Uh, when I got there, the pastors didn't even really have a vote on critical issues. And I fought in that space to be like, no, especially if we have people in here who look like me, I need to be able to speak. And so, uh, we did gain a vote, but the shepherds kind of lead the church and the ministers or the pastors, project the vision and help us put systems in place to get us to where we're going.
0: So if we're trying to make a parallel, maybe shepherds would be considered like elders, like an elder board. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the ministers and pastors are not part of that team.
2: We weren't. Right. But then, um, so we would, we would come into the shepherds or elders meeting and kind of say what we need to say. And then they can ask us, to uh, to leave but over my time they had asked us to stay in and I think primarily it's because we begin to become diverse and um, my voice needed to be heard on some things not all things so there was a fight to say no um, our ministers do matter their voices do need to be heard and as we kind of figure out what direction we're going
0: that's super helpful you guys all make this decision like okay, well clearly we need to disciple the church through what's happening in America at large surrounding systemic racism. So it seems like you're a little hopeful at that point, right? Maybe yes. maybe I'm projecting that in. Like okay, we're actually going to do something. So can yes. you can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that came to be and how that went?
2: Yes. And what I'll say first is race is a subject I never brought up at church. It was one of those things where I knew I needed to insulate my white brothers and sisters in Christ. I just didn't bring it up. Uh, And then once it was brought up, uh, it was no putting it back in the box. Like (laughs) once you start talking to me about it, here we are. And so we begin to look at what was happening in our world. Um, A few of the shepherds decided to step down, and we had some younger shepherds step in. And we went through a series by a gentleman named Rick Ashley in Highland Hills, Texas, Why Talk About Race? And it was like a seven-part series. Um, We hired a team to do a strategic operation out of Tulsa to come and look at the history of our church, the history of Tulsa, and put together a plan on how we could become more diverse. We decided that we could reach interracial couples. We were equipped for that. And so we started moving down that direction. And this is kind of when I realized the power play within the church. Uh, Those who give more really do have a louder voice. (laughs) And, And some of them were like, no, we do not want to head down that direction. The church is on the outskirts of town. It has always been known for a safe as a safe place for other Church of Christ members who've been hurt by the Church of Christ. It wasn't looking to be more like the community. It had its identity. And so uh, part of it was just me being naive. Uh, when you make a Black person a pastor, uh, you assume that we're moving <laughs> in that direction. Uh, but I realized now it was more of this token position to be like, hey, we we did this thing, clap for us, but we will not bend the culture of our church or open the culture of our church to allow other people to really have a voice and a space.
1: And how long had you been at the church by Van Kendall?
2: About 10 years with the two years volunteering, so eight years probably eight years. staff.
1: So eight years.
0: So... You have this friend come on. Uh, he You weren't friends yet, but right. you have this person come on staff and you start building a friendship. Ian, mm. what happens next?
2: Yeah. So with, within that, we were looking for a youth minister and we put together a team. Uh, I got to be a part of speaking and kind of charging that group. And I told them, and I know they didn't want to hear it. I told them, hey, you guys are going to hire another white guy. And they got offended by that. Uh, but I said, if you do, make sure he speaks a, a different language as well. Think about our community. And like, no, we're not going to hire another white guy. But then uh, one of the shepherds was like, how did you know we were going to? We're going to hire someone who you're comfortable with, who, who looks like you. And so it's not an issue. Just think about the community. Uh, they bring Ian in, uh, and the shepherd that brought Ian in was so gung ho on shepherd, but it was also the shepherd who told me, "We want to help black people in our community. We just don't want them in our building." So when he was excited about Ian, I wasn't. I was like, oh, Wait, "No, hold,
1: hold on, hold on." Okay, so you had a shepherd. I remember this from your story. It's like I remember, and I'm having the same reaction that I had when you told me then. So you had a shepherd actually say. We don't want people of color. We don't want black people in our building. This actually, happened. oh yeah,
2: yeah, in this well, in the auditorium sanctuary. Yeah, it was a it was a long conversation. Did a couple things. To let me know he didn't see me yeah. as black. So he was like, "This is our guy," and I was like, "No, this cannot be our guy." And so I'm saying no. We find someone else. They said, no, let's bring Ian back in. Let's give him a, a second interview. They bring Ian in. I'm still a no until Ian is hired. Uh, actually, no. They have me call Ian and, and get to know Ian over their phone. I call Ian and find out that Ian is reading a lot of the same things that I'm reading. He's been praying to work with a black pastor. And I'm like, they don't know who they're getting. Let's get in. <laughs> let's, let's get us when can you start type of conversation and so ian is brought in and we begin to talk about our love for different authors and we strike up this beautiful relationship but i pull ian aside i think within the first few months and share with him this is kind of really what you're getting into this is my fight i'm fighting for us to have a place at the table i'm fighting to bring people in this building who look different than what's in the building. I'm fighting to change the culture because I believe biblically this is what's right. The community here is, we split on Sundays because we have a very hurtful and traumatic past. I would love to see a place that speaks into that and believes that God can still reconcile people together. So he joins in that fight. He sees the vision And we begin to wrestle against the the power of the church together. A black and white superhero in the church. Uh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Really, truly, though, I feel it was powerful. Like your friendship was powerful. And it's an Mm -hmm. example of what could have been. And that's what makes the next part of your story so freaking infuriating. You guys are doing the work you're continuing yes. forward within a strategic operation that you thought everyone was committed to so it's Correct. not like you're even walking this like progressive scary road that like yeah. isn't isn't something people are aware of like we right. we've commi- committed to this at a uh, the highest levels of leadership within our church and we're just like <laughs> reading some books trying to, like, relationally move in this direction. How did that get received by the shepherds as you guys continued to grow in your convictions of how to walk this out in that community? Uh,
2: Primarily, there was one shepherd who, the same one who said what he said, uh, who did not believe in the vision, did not like the idea. He had had some experiences with Black people when he was younger that he still carried. So he made that extremely difficult in fact when when there were jobs given for him to do he just wouldn't do them.
0: Can you explain some of what he did to make it difficult? Was it just like a tone or a feeling?
2: No, no, we we had many conversations. Um here here's one of the situations. Um we were in a weekly meeting. He was the executive pastor, the Secretary was there. I was there. Ian was there. Ian, um, and the secretary was sharing a story about her past and about her husband. She uses the N word in the story. I look to him to protect me. About ten seconds that felt like an hour went by, and I stopped the whole meeting and I say, "How did you guys feel when she used that word?" And he says, "I wish that she wouldn't have used that word." And I was like, "Well." why didn't you stop her? Why didn't you cover me in that situation? So there were many, many situations like that, that let me know that you are not on board with what's happening. You you are not here to see me as a whole person and worthy of shepherding and protecting. Um, so we had several. So that's why I paused. I was like, man, I can't, There are many times when I needed to come against this guy. Uh, Ian and I I would be planning in the auditorium, thinking about what could, and he would just kind of walk back and forth and just look at us and then bring up in another meeting how they don't even include me in their meeting, and they talk, and they're friends, and they leave me out. And that's such a horrific painting of what was happening or memorization. We— you're welcome in space, but, but so am I. <laughs> that's, that's the thing that Ian got, that Kendall's welcome here. He can be all of who he is. I don't need to insulate Ian from what's happening in the world, talk softer. Um, and so there was an expectation that I would decrease myself in order to get this thing moving forward. To the point to where um I was asked not to do several things by this guy i I led singing my whole life, um and so he told me that uh I can no longer lead singing for our congregation because i I sing too different, which i'd been doing it eight years, nine years there, so a lot of little things with that individual to bring us to the space where I understood, I don't have a voice at the table with him. So I don't know if I really answered your yeah, question. You,
1: you answered it. It was horrific. I mean, they meant, I mean, <laughs> honestly, like what you're describing, like it's dehumanizing, but most importantly, what you said, they're, they're they're making you feel, like they're making you want to shrink and be smaller. For you to be in this space, mm-hmm. you've got to be, you've got to be who they want you to be. And if not, you're a, exactly. you're a threat.
2: It, it was. I thank God for Ian. Yeah, um, I really do because we laughed through a lot of it. I had moved my office from the front with all the other offices to the back, uh, primarily because I there was always somebody popping by. Everyone, everyone that was close to me, the students that were still there, they knew they could just walk in, turn on music. And I didn't want to disturb what was happening up front, but Ian would come back there, and we would just talk about, "Hey, how do we move forward? How are you doing? How are you really doing?" Uh, and that was always Ian's question: "Hey, what's going on, man? Good. All right. Now, how are you really doing?" And then we'd kind of <laughs> we'd kind of get into some real conversations, um, not to get too deep into the friendship, but to kind of give you my mindset that I was I was already isolated, I already felt alone. I didn't feel like I had a voice other than what I felt like they wanted me to say as a pastor. And I knew that I couldn't share with the body what was happening. That wasn't my place to do that. But like I said, in the beginning, if reconciliation isn't a part of your foundation, you won't get, you'll never get there.
1: Yeah. If it's not part of your DNA, and if you're not if exactly. you're not upfront with these things, again, this is me speaking. I think every church, specifically churches white well, every white church has to has to come out and be like, in some way, racism and race has played a part in our church. And we have to not only publicly mm-hmm. repent of that, but we then we have to do the work for restoration and healing and reconciliation. And we have to lead mm-hmm. that work, meaning like we have to make the initiatives to do that work. And if we're not. I mean, it's never going to go anywhere. It's going to always be like what you said, Kendall, just things we talk about, but not any type of actual yeah. work. Your church is unique because I actually applaud them for trying to like create an initiative, right? Like, And the initiative, like mm-hmm. we, you and I talked about it a little bit more in detail, and it sounded really great, like what the, the people yeah. they brought in to really help plan this. But it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was just going to be right. a document that they could put on the wall and say, we did that. And, and then huh. they could say, oh, by the way, we have a black pastor. Here he is. And that's, that's it.
0: Because they didn't want to use their privilege yeah. to lift up leaders that didn't look like yeah. them to actually do the work and sit underneath that leadership and listen Th- that would be, and learn. That's so true. What they wanted to do was lead it yeah, <laughs> themselves <laughs> yeah. and be the same voice and the same power. Yeah. And they didn't want to actually <clears throat> do we love books. Yeah, Books are great. White yeah. Church, love. let's go. Give me a book. Books. We yeah. we love to read a book. We love to do a book study, but like doing the work. Yeah. Like actually giving up Power and privilege in order to make the fundamental changes we need to make to start this reconciliation process to actually have tables where we're not having to fight to bring certain people to it, but we're actually expanding and growing and cultivating this space. Like, that's not going to happen unless white people loudly give up their privilege Mm -hmm. to allow voices that are not white or that view things differently or have these beautiful different point of views than our our norm it's gonna go nowhere and it is just a certificate so we can make all the plans and read all the books but if we're not willing to take the next step which is what you and ian thought you were doing yeah yeah then it's a certificate Going back to you having this like very firm moral resolve within yourself, this is who I am. This is my beliefs. You're not bending to just being a certificate on the wall. Right. You're saying, no, I believe more. I believe in a God who desires this for his people. Like we mm-hmm. have to wrestle with this, we have to confront that. Again, back to this amazing grace that that is to the church to have voices and And people that are committed, like you and Ian were in that moment, to say, I believe more for you because Jesus loves you enough for me to say, stand up and say, we can't keep doing this. You can't keep doing this. Like, I'm believing more for you because you're an image bearer of Jesus and this doesn't look like Jesus. So how do I encourage you and exhort you? to be more like Jesus in this moment. This is you loving them. This is you providing grace, being an example of grace to them and care. Oh, good Lord, though, it did not get received that way.
1: (laughs) But God chose to put the words to life through the name, through the life of Jesus and become man and become his words and enter into spaces publicly and feel things and talk to people. So for racism specifically, in dealing with racial reconciliation or restoration, or I'm going to say another word, reparations, that we aren't even talking about, but things that we should be talking about in the church, we Mm -hmm. have to enter those conversations, not with words, but with actions in doing things. Because that is the Christ-like thing to do, because that's what God did for us. And mm-hmm. so it's important to understand that when we say preach the gospel, but we do nothing, it's a contradiction to doing that. The gospel is living yeah. those things. Amen.
0: Yeah, he didn't just fill the empty tummies with words, <laughs> he filled them with fish and bread. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah.
2: So true. And it's a part yeah. of who, it's part of what he's been doing even back in, in Exodus, you know, when he's telling them, Hey, when you live, hey, leave some of your gardening. Leave it out for the other people that are walking by. There's always been souljourners. His job is to restore everything. And so especially relationships. So when I when I see this from the character of God and I see the church, it's like what are we reading and and who are we modeling after? He, his heart has always been to bring all races and nations, not races, only one race, but all nations to
1: himself. All right. So I want to get to you leaving right what what did you decide to leave you know when did you decide to leave and then walk us through that process what are you feeling what are you going through and then how kind of the church responded once you left
2: oh man about 2 years before uh, Amy and I left god put a passage just kind of on my heart from proverbs and it's it's simple man, but it's hard to live out <laughs> when when your finances are tied to your job but he says the wise man sees calamity coming and he gets out of the way. But the foolish man <laughs> sees it and stays and reaps destruction. So I, I labored with that. God, is this destruction? Is it is this do I need to move? Is it time to move? And so uh, I wrestled with God in space. I didn't know that I was called to kind of cut my teeth there, to learn what it means to preach and proclaim and to pastor and to lead. And that that was my time there. That was where I was getting my uh, sharpening my game, if you will, towards the last two years of my time, I really realized that I'm not here to pastor forever. Uh, I'm here to learn primarily about the own prejudices in my own heart. I'm here to learn how do I respond to racial pressure how do I continue to fight for a dream that I can't see physically right now? Those That was my breeding ground for what I believe I'm called to do, but I had to go through it so that I can teach it. So we'll move to about the last six months of me being at the church I was at. They begin to try to force me to leave. Because they had no grounds to fire me. My time there, I'd love that place well. I'd love the people well. I'd always been free to lay out my sermons, how, how I felt I was led to lay them out. But they began to say, hey, I need six months of your sermons. Uh, give me the outlines, give me the references, give me the sources. Like <laughs> they wanted everything. And I'm like, kind of, where, does this, where is this coming from? But then that verse, oh, calamity coming. <laughs> I see it. And so as I, they begin to put more on me, and I want just the listeners to know, if you're a part of a church that's 300 and under, the pastor does way more than pastor. So I'm leading songs, I'm doing worship slides, I'm doing video and video editing, I'm doing the teaching of small groups, still messing around with what youth is here. So they're putting more on me, like, okay, this is intentional.
0: And do you have Ian doing that with you?
2: Yes, he is. He's starting to, I'm starting to share that load with him, but I also didn't want to put way too much on Ian because... His job description was evolving as well. They were going to mm-hmm. try to, I think, make into youth and children in some way. And so yeah. I already knew how to do what I've been doing for years. So I was just like, hey, if you can't help out here, let's try to split some of the, the governing duties of, of worship. So,
0: Are you both feeling this weirdness, this shift?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. Yes, we're we're slowly... Uh, the conversation about reconciliation is kind of stopping Mm -hmm. and it's more of we have some squeaky wheels Um, we have some people who are wondering about the direction of the church anytime you hear those conversations there are people with power who we need to honor their voices and then Mm -hmm. the conversation takes a pivot to we just need to wait to some of the older people die off and then moving direction that we want to <laughs> look See, at that yeah, faith. Like you're
1: waiting for older people to die off for generations and after generations when are they all going to die
2: yeah and for me i'm like no the, the, what what faith is that do, do you not believe that god can do something in the heart of an old person or what what is what is this situation but the yeah reconciliation healing in the community unity which I had to address that a couple times, the concept of unity and uniformity, they had confused. What they were saying was unity, but what they were wanting was uniformity, come in here and be like us, which what we agreed upon, unity, I can be all of who I am in here and know that we're better because I'm in here or there in here. So once we started looking more uniformed again, I realized that, we're not going to go after this. So Ian and I begin to have those conversations of um what do we do? Um we're, I'm committed. It, my whole family is blended. Uh, my wife like I said is white and Native American. My children are mixed. Um I'm all, I'm all in on this cause. There is no going back for me.
1: You you realize you're at this point where this is not going to happen. Right. And ultimately there's some other situations that play out with Ian and his departure that, yes. that are not ideal. And then at what point, I guess what I'm trying to get to, at what point do you realize, I'm going to have to leave? This is it, and I'm planning for for how to, to leave. And what did that look like?
2: Man, I guess it was speaking with my wife and talking about the dream of what church should feel like. Um, we began to dream about a place called Belong, where people could belong and have equity at the table. And I'm sitting at um, the church where I work, dreaming about that church. <laughs> um, and my hope is there, and, and my vision is there, my passion is there. And it was somewhere within that last six months that I, I kind of shut down there. I stopped preaching. I asked for some time, uh, played some video. I gave them the sermon outline that they asked for. I had told the shepherds a long time before that if we move down the road of reconciliation and we pivot off of it, I would leave. So they already knew that I'm committed to this with them. And when I had a real conversation with one of the shepherds about our executive minister, who was racist, and he let me to know that I would need to fight that on my own. I knew we weren't moving in a space of reconciliation. And so it was then I let them know that I'm going to be looking um, to step down. I need to, I need to heal. And so I took the rest of those six months. I would come in and do my work at the office, and then I would go to Honor Heights Park, and I'd walk, and I'd pray, and I'd talk with God. And I found some mentors who led me into the space of Howard Thurman, his teachings, and I began to heal with his vision of Jesus and the disinherited and a few other books about surviving black trauma and acute trauma. It was in that space that I knew I'm not done pastoring, but my time here is concluded and I'm very grateful for what I learned here. And it was also in that time, I was like, okay, I'll never share this story. (laughs) Uh, And then here you guys come, bodies behind the bus. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm one of the bodies behind the bus. (laughs) You are. (laughs) And I thought I was driving. So So I need to share. I found my people within your group to heal and to to learn from. And so it was in the last six months of my time there. After what Ian, my wife, and I wrote something on Facebook that went against leadership, just saying, Ian, we love you and we support you. And when we decided to publicly support Ian, we knew we were stepping down there.
0: So painful. Something that I love about that for you and Ian is just how isolating these situations can be like you lose Mm -hmm. this community that you assumed was your family. And oftentimes survivors of abuse in these contexts don't have even their closest friends or sometimes even family members publicly say like, you're someone I love. Mm -hmm. I love you. I'm not okay with how this went down. And just the fact that you were even publicly willing to be like, we're good. Like, <laughs> I see you and and like, I'm not giving up on our friendship. Yeah. It means so much because shunning is so real in these contexts. Mm-hmm. So, I'm encouraged by that and hope that other people are encouraged too. Like, if you see a yeah. friend getting pushed out, publicly making a stand that you still love them yeah. means more than you think yeah. and is so healing. I would love for you to take a minute because, you know, something we didn't walk through is you became that lead pastor, but you had this like vibrant ministry with your wife Mm -hmm. that's super diverse in this white church. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just like, poof. Yeah. Can you explain why that happened? Uh, or what led to that a little bit?
2: Yeah. Well, a part of it was, um, me, being positioned as that gatekeeper, having the conversations, because everywhere I go, and it's probably the same for most Black people, I don't care where I'm at. If I see another Black people, I'm throwing my head up. There's just a natural connection. And so when Black people would come in that space, they'd find me. <laughs> they'd be like, hey, man, it's good to see you. And then quickly they would pivot to the real question, the questions of, am I safe here? Am I loved here? Can I be all of me here? And after answering those questions, uh, many of them we would never see again. And so the college ministry, after having that conversation where I was told by a shepherd that uh, they can find another church home, after sharing that with them, many of them left. But a few of them stayed. And the college ministry went from the college ministry to a young adult ministry. And, And that began to take on its own form of life. And so we would have church and then we would have church, you know, (laughs) it was a different feel back there. I don't know if that was competition with the body uh, on the other side of the partition, but it helped me to understand that there isn't harmony here for people who look like leadership here. I would always have to walk a tight balance and that's not something I wanted to do. So in seeing that, I began to understand that people like me will never be welcome unless there's more in leadership. And that's not something that was going to ever happen there in in, in my lifetime. But until we have more voices at the table to where I can't be dismissed. And that's where Ian played a key role. Ian taught me so much. Watching Ian be a white man at that table was beautiful for me to see. Because I learned at that table, they can dismiss me and they can ask me to leave. They could not dismiss Ian. He had privilege to be there. The only thing they could do was ignore Ian. But he had a right to be there. And I watched how Ian navigate that space. And I come to realize that, wait a minute, this, this is a space I can never have a voice at. Now, they could choose to turn my volume up and hear me from time to time, but I couldn't speak with the same authority that Ian did there. It's not in the DNA. So that was the, the light bulb moment that it has to be from the jump. From the jump, we have to have black, brown, white, Asian men, women, Native American who see the kingdom. And the vision of the kingdom is what we strive after over position. You can keep the position stuff we're here to do a mission a mission of love and it wasn't there and so seeing it all come to fruition helped me to say it's time to let them have it love them honor them in my departure my wife and i read a letter they were supposed to bring us up and honor us but they didn't they just a shepherd got up and said kendall has something to read Amy and I read our letter, we asked for to pray for us. None of the shepherds got up to pray for us. One of the members said, hey, you guys just heard Kendall ask for prayer. Let's just do this now. He prayed on us, and he sent us forward. And that was how it all ended in that space.
1: I, I want to get to the end of these questions. But I do want to say, and if you have something to you, John, I, I want to say like, what's upsetting is the fact that you, and we didn't share a lot of this in the story, but the congregation or the members of the people you interacted with them frequently they felt comfortable coming oh, to your yeah. office talking to you you told me a couple conversations that were horrific but then the way you handled it mm-hmm. was was masterful and they they had you had an open door policy and people came in and talked to you so the congregation mm-hmm. you served and shepherded well that con- with that congregation they loved you and you loved them just think about this you've served for 10 years faithfully you're leaving the church The men that lead the church don't even have the ability to come up and congratulate you and thank you and pray for you. They completely ignore you. In context, Mm -hmm. in the SBC, you've had men who have abused people, who have been caught in infidelity, who have been caught doing horrible things, leave with their pride, with congratulations— All of those things. So if white privilege doesn't exist, right, this is a perfect example of white privilege here where a white man can do whatever he wants, but he's going to leave well. Where you have Kendall who has served faithfully and there's no marks of anything on him other than the fact that he wants to leave and he has the right to leave and that's it. They can't even get up. All right, Kendall, so... I I, two things. I would love for you just to bring us forward what you're doing today with belong. Um, You've talked a little bit about resources, uh, so if you want to share more about resources, you can. And then I would love to hear from you those kind of last three questions about you know what do you want to why did you want to share your story, you know what would you say to people who are in similar situations, and then. I would love to hear, what, would, what do you want to say to the church? You can talk to the local church, the global church, your church leaders, whatever whatever you may want to say with that. So,
2: Well, I'll start kind of with where we are now. Um, my wife and I, uh, we walked through this together. We had a vision for a place called Belong. which God is doing a great work in. now. We ended up starting a home church in our house. Several members who were a part of that church— came to be a part of Belong. And this is how it happened. The shepherds there at that space beginning uh, began to spin a narrative about me. And when the friends of ours came over and said, what's your side? And Amy was like, we don't have a side to share with you guys. They said, if they're speaking bad about you and you're not saying anything, we're going with you. <laughs> that says something about who you are. And we didn't know we were going anywhere. You know, we were at home hurting and they were like, well, we'll be here on Sunday. (laughs) We can hurt together. And, And that's kind of the birth of Belong. We started just here in our house. We're now at the Martin Luther King Center. Uh, We're looking for a building. We're looking to connect with other churches with the same vision. And our our mission is to reconcile people to God and to one another. Our vision is to unite our city. There has to have a—we have to have a real conversation about what happened here in this town. And I believe that's the work we're called into. As far as the body of Christ, don't be afraid of difficult questions. There's one great thing that Rick actually said in those series that the church watched. He said, if you have a black or brown friend who's never shared with you their experience of being black and brown, you have an acquaintance. You don't have a friend. He said that those people are insulating you. They're carrying your problems, but they've never shared their American experience as someone who's black or brown. So I would say press into your friends. Ask him and don't let him off the hook because we will try to protect us in our nature. We'll say, man, it's been pretty good. And don't don't end there. Say, no, how has it really been? Because I care. I want to know. So press into our brothers and our sisters. Press into your leadership. Ask, hey, why are we talking about the issues that are happening in the world? And here's, to me, the most important thing. Take church out of this, like, ethereal space. We're human We are people who've got it backwards and got it wrong, and we make up the body. Let's live that way. Let's have real relationships. Let's dismiss this fake love, the brother and sister in Christ. Don't call me brother if you don't know me. Like, (laughs) come and get to know me, and go and get to know those people who are in your body. We have a big job to do. We need one another, and it's so much better when we do it together.
1: I want to make sure, is there anything else you'd like to share that you feel like you didn't get a chance to share or speak to?
2: Yeah, I'll say two more things. Um, for those who are, and just, just the pastors, we're walking into the, There there's people who've done it before us, but there's no real manual, and we get a lot wrong. Pastors, when you get something wrong, just apologize. It goes a whole lot further with the people that you love to say, you know what? I messed this one up. I've done it several times as a minister at the church I was at. And I'd had to reach out to people and be like, man, I, I handled that poorly. And I'm sorry about that. Be human in that space. We don't have it figured out. And then for anyone who is a Black pastor at a white congregation that feels alone, reach out to me. You are not alone. You are loved. You are put in that position for a reason, but that doesn't mean you have to take on trauma in that position. You have to find your voice of love that simply says to people, hey, that hurt. I want you to know you hurt me. And those bring about real relationships versus what I did was I just was silent and it it didn't work out well for me or my heart or anxiety, but be present be fully aware of your emotions in those spaces and share with the body that this wasn't right by me. And uh, I feel this way about what happened.
0: I think I remembered while you were saying that just now, this concept of taking up space that you shared with me on our phone call. Do you remember talking about that? Like you weren't allowed to take up space there.
2: I wasn't. Yeah.
0: And I think that what you're saying right now is just so profound for for other pastors or or black men or women or really anybody that's not white that is pastoring in a predominantly white context you're allowed to take up space you're mm-hmm. allowed to be fully you in all of the wondrous glory that god created you in yeah. and i think it's really beautiful that you're just like open to to talking with and walking what that looks like to make steps into that because it is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can't even relate on that level cause I'm white. So I have that privilege. Uh, but I have ministered in contexts where I'm not allowed to be fully me and mm-hmm. it's traumatic. And there yeah. are things I'm still working out years afterwards. Like yeah. it, can I exist in any space and be fully me? Yeah. And so I just think that's really wise advice and i hope people that are hearing that are hearing it's not wrong if you feel wrong for existing yeah that is not you that is the space you are in that is wrong yes amen i want you to have a second to share why you chose to come share your story because you struggled with that like it's been a journey for you to get here and share this story and for you not to feel wrong sharing your story
2: yeah Yeah, um Immediately, just as someone who—I love the body of Christ, and so I I don't want to hurt it in any way. So initially, I was like, no, this is just going to hurt the church. But as I said, uh, Ian shared your podcast, and I believe wholeheartedly that I'm connected to Christ, and therefore I have His light in me, and I have an obligation to start at home first. So often we believe that this light is just for the world, but— the church is a part of the world, and we have an obligation to speak truth to the powers of church in the hopes of repenting and changing and me being in both positions. Yeah, I, I need people to speak truth. I need people to shine the light of Christ in my life. That brings me to a space of humbleness. I don't have it all figured out. So I wanted to share for that reason that I, I feel that I have been in a place where I can see some things that maybe church folk, the the body, see, but don't feel like they can say it. I can say it because I'm still pastoring, but I feel like I've also been given the privilege to say it with love. Like, this is wrong. Not you are wrong. This is wrong. And that light that you've been ignoring inside of you, That's Christ saying, fix this. And maybe I can reach into someone's life and they hear this and say, hey, I do need to fix this. I do need to be a part of these real conversations. And I do believe what God is doing is still, he's still doing it. And I want to be a part of that versus the systems of keeping church alive. Mic drop. That's beautiful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Even from the first phone call that we had with you, I mean, I said this to Ian, too, earlier this week. It is so easy to feel just completely wrung out and dry mm-hmm. and hopeless, especially with what Jay and I do. Like, it is hard to hear these stories. It's really hard to walk in this space. It's hard to mm-hmm. be surrounded by kind of the worst parts of yeah. the consequences for people not living what the what Jesus has called us to. I appreciate you guys taking the time to share with us and the integrity that you both carried in your character. It has shown brightly through the conversations that we've had and it's these types of conversations that give us hope to continue to seek Jesus and to believe mm-hmm. better for God's people, because it's easy to start thinking that he's not doing the work anymore yeah. and that we have just been left, but but seeing people like you and Ian and other storytellers and watching Jesus work in you, in your life yeah. and watching you not just read the books, but live it, that yeah. is an encouragement to me and Jay and listeners to not give up hope. like. Yeah. It, when when hope feels too hard to carry, like watching you carry hope is is a a grace to us. So thank you,
2: thank you. I, I really appreciate those words. And um, I don't
0: know if I'm that's honored. getting in there, but I wanted you to hear that.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. And can I give uh, a quick thanks to my wife? Yes, she's downstairs yes. watching the kids uh amy i love you and thank you for all that you do she's been my rock in this i've leaned on her she's she's given me words she's uh gone back and said hey don't text that (laughs) right (laughs) because because too much of me came out in that so So i'm very grateful for amy and walking Mm -hmm. with her in this space Mm -hmm.
0: So beautiful. beautiful. Well, if Amy ever wants to come share her story, <laughs> well, I would love, love to hear from Amy. So. Oh, she'll
2: blow me out of the water. I'm telling you, she, <laughs> she's amazing.
0: <laughs> a common question that Jay and I have asked of us is how do we still have hope? And to be honest, it's often a struggle. But just when we're at our lowest, white-knuckling our faith our faith feeling like a thread that could snap at any moment, we get a call from someone like Kendall. Kendall embodies authenticity and care. He reminded us that there are shepherds with hearts to love people the way Jesus loves them. Stories like his encourage us and strengthen our hope that God has not abandoned the church and that there are people faithfully persevering to live the gospel. But this story is not over yet. This was just part one. Next week, we are going to be hearing from Ian, his friend that he mentioned for part two, and then we will have them both together for part three the following week. So be sure to subscribe so you do not miss it. These conversations are so beautiful and restorative, and we just cannot wait for you to hear them. I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast.
1: views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions.